uh, I, my Bible, I don't know about yours, is really getting marked up here in Acts. And uh, I'm reading it like mad, and we're in Acts chapter 2, and I can barely read it now because there's so much underlying going on here, but I'm going to try to get through it. Now, I want to encourage you, uh, as I mentioned this week in an email, I want to encourage you not only to read the little uh, blurb that we send out as a reminder of what the message is about, but also to read through whatever passage that we're going to be looking at for that week. We let you know, and, and uh, I even added this last week, uh, a video uh, or, a, or an audio clip so that you could actually listen in, and whether you're driving or just hanging out, six minutes, you get all of Acts chapter 2, so you come prepared, expecting God to teach you something new about that passage. So hope you had a chance to listen to it. If not, I'm going to review it basically this morning, and then we're going to talk about Acts chapter 2, which I titled The Pentecost Push. The Pentecost Push. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly, I like that, just out of nowhere, suddenly there appeared or there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them as tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. I mean, could you imagine this scene here in the early development of the church? As we know in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has ascended. He's gone. He has left them. He has left the building. Jesus is gone. He has gone back to heaven. He was here. He ministered to His disciples. He raised them up. And He gathered them together in Acts chapter 1. And He's gone. And He said, wait here. Something powerful is about to happen. And here it happens. Acts chapter 2, suddenly, the noise, the fire, the tongues, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in utterances. I mean, this is a pretty moving, powerful section of Scripture that reminds us of the early development of the faith of the disciples and the birth of the church. This is where it all begins, right here. This is the Big Bang. This is what takes place that launches the mission of the church. And it's exciting. And it begins with a push. Suddenly, there's an an imposition. The Holy Spirit comes powerfully upon the early believers. They didn't ask for it. They may not even have wanted it. But it came. And it came powerfully. There was something that happened here. The Holy Spirit shows up. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, there's a little bit of a push. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't want to push. Just leave me where I am. I'm perfectly fine right where I am. I like my community, like my faith the way I got it, like the church, but that's as far as I want to go. Leave me alone. And that's okay. I understand that. Sometimes we feel like that. Don't push me. Don't push me any further. I don't want to be pushed. And I get that. I was thinking of some things in which sometimes we need a push. A zip line. If you've ever done a zip line, you just need a little push. 
because you're not going to go because there's no way you're going to trust that thin little cable to hold you above what you're about to go over. And it's frightening when you're up there. And then all of a sudden, a little put, okay, I can do it. And off you go, and it's exhilarating. And you know it's exhilarating. The minute you're in it, you're like, why, why didn't I just jump in? Why didn't I just let go? It's like at the edge of a cliff, and there's a beautiful Colorado River below, and you're on a rock, and you want to jump in, but you're frightened. And, and you just, sometimes it's just, okay, let's do it together. All right, and off you go. I remember, my dad's here this morning, and I remember when I was a young person, I, he took me to Mammoth, and we were learning how to snow ski, and I was, I don't know, very, very young, probably junior high, maybe even earlier. And I remember he said, you're ready, let's go to the cornice. All the way top, take, the gondola was like this weird, mystical ball, globe or whatever it was that went up to the mountain. And, and it was frightening. That's, you don't, as a child, you don't get in that thing and you don't go that far up. It's frightening. What's up there? I don't know. It's going to kill you. And I was scared to death of it. And then finally I got in, went with him, got to the edge of the cornice, and I didn't want to go, and he gave me a little push. Dang it. And over I went, halfway down, grabbing onto the snow, trying to stop myself. I am thinking, I, I don't like this person anymore. He has pushed me off the edge further than I wanted to go. And I got down about halfway, and he skis down. He goes, hey, you okay? Get up. Let's go. And up I went, and down, I, down the mountain, back into that gondola, back to the top, and down I was, and I never stopped. It was, it was life-changing for me. And that's, that's a little bit of what it feels like, what's going on here. It's when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon the early church, it's just this little nudge, this little push, and off they go. And so we're going to look at this this morning. We're going to look at the event itself, this Pentecost event, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in the tongues these tongues, and, and we're going to talk about that, and, and the recipients of this speaking, there's individuals from all over the Mediterranean region. I mean, they were as far as from North Africa all the way over to Rome. These were Jewish individuals that had come for a festival, and they were from all over, and they were crowded in Jerusalem, and they received this word, this tongue, all these different tongues. And we're going to talk about the event of Pentecost and then after all this, there was amazement and perplexity. And then Peter takes his stand, it says in verse 14, raises his voice and preaches the first gospel message. And he gives a sermon and he quotes Joel, Joel that there's going to be signs and wonders. Your young people will dream dreams. The Spirit of God has come and it's unleashing this power and it's unleashing dreams and visions and wonder for the church. And Peter makes this proclamation and preaches that it's all about Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And then it says at the very end of Acts chapter 2, jumping all the way ahead, it says that they were pierced to the heart, and it says that they, they didn't know what to do. And Peter says, well, just repent. Each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, in verse 38, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Just like we received the Holy Spirit, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And they did. 
And thousands were added that day. And, and some movement was birthed in Acts chapter 2. And they were added 3,000 souls in verse 41. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And they started selling their properties and possessions and sharing with anybody that had need. Community was born. And then it says, they were adding their number day by day, those who were being saved. And it closes out Acts chapter 2. It's a remarkable section of Scripture in which we discover that the Holy Spirit comes in this particular day, the day of Pentecost, and empowers and equips believers... And individuals like Peter become now eager to preach the gospel, bold. There's an eagerness, and then all of a sudden an expectation for something new. The community is born with these great expectations that more will be added because the community of faith, the church, this movement, will, will come together and they'll, they'll act like a real community of people that love each other. There's an expectation. And I want to look at all of those this morning with you. It begins at Pentecost. Now, we know in Acts chapter 1, if you go all the way back to Acts 1, in verse 4, it says, wait here in Jerusalem. He, he called the disciples and, and the apostles and, and the men and women that had made a decision to follow Jesus, about 120, to wait in Jerusalem, and they were waiting and praying. He says, wait, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Acts 1.8, when you shall receive the Spirit, you'll, you'll be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and, and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. You'll be a witness when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so they waited, they waited. They were in prayer. And then all of a sudden it happens. And it says there was great excitement and there were miracles taking place. And in chapter 2, 38, many repented and gave their lives to Christ and and as we look through this section of Scripture in Acts, there was power, and they were filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. There were signs and wonders, and a great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. And, and, and there were signs and wonders from the apostles in verse 12 of chapter 5. And, and then it, it says in Acts 6, they gathered together, and they, they chose leaders, and, and the church grew, and it, it was spread, the number of disciples, and they continued greatly in Jerusalem, and, and the movement began, there was persecution, and I'm just looking through Acts, and I'm looking at all the places where the Spirit told Peter to go in Acts chapter 11, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and, and the Holy Spirit is moving out people into the world, and you see that throughout Acts, this, with signs and wonders and miracles and all that's happening. So what's going on here, and, and what's our takeaway for this morning? Here it is. The first is, when the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us, we become equipped and empowered to do His work, to share His message. That's what happens when I, we talk about baptism of the Spirit, we talk about filling of the Spirit, we talk about receiving the Spirit, all the words that are used, it's all the same thing. It's the moment in which you put your faith in Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, you get baptized into the body of Christ. You get incorporated into a community of faith followers. Followers of Jesus that have faith in Him. You're part of the church, and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Salvation through accepting Christ, 
Holy Spirit-empowered life. Happens just like that. Now here in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, is an historic event that inaugurates this thing called the empowerment and the equipping of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is the moment in history when the Holy Spirit comes and demonstrates, I will fill my new followers of Christ. And from this day forward, the minute a person comes to Christ, they're filled with the Spirit. And throughout Acts, we find that. And, and, and there's some nuances throughout Acts in terms of the timing of all that. But we find a consistent message in the New Testament. The receiving of Christ brings the filling of the Spirit for the empowerment and equipping for ministry. And so what I want to show you this morning, first of all, in Acts chapter 2, is that empowerment and equipping happened at Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was an historic event. It's one of the three festivals of the early uh, first century Jews that were living in all these different regions from northern Africa and Palestine and further north. And, and they would gather together three times a year, and this was a festival of feasts. And so they would bring their first fruits. But by the first century, this became a celebration of not simply first fruits, but a covenant relationship with God. It, Pentecost represented celebrating the renewal of the law that God had given them, the covenant. I will, be your, I will be your God and you will be my people. If you follow my ways, we will have a love relationship. We will have a committed relationship. We're going to do this thing together. And so they would come together at Pentecost to renew their commitment to that law. And this one is going to be a little different. Because in the middle of this Pentecost experience, guess who shows up? It's not the law. It's not something written on paper. It's the power of, in the presence of of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down, the giver of the law, the interpreter of the law, the living law of God, the word of God through the power of the Spirit. It's the one that Jesus says in John 14, I send you the helper who's going to lead you into all truth. This is the comfort that you need. I go in John 14. It is interesting to me that in John 14, he begins by don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be troubled. Don't be worried. I go to prepare a place for you. And they're all worried. Where is this place? How are we going to get there? What do we know? Why are you leaving us? You can't leave us. He says, no, no, no. You don't understand. John 14, 15, and 16, I need to go so that the Holy Spirit comes because you cannot carry on my ministry without the Spirit. You need the Spirit of God. You need this. The Spirit of God is the member of the Trinity that empowers you and equips you to be a follower of Christ. The ministry of Christ continues through the work of the Spirit of God. This is something you need. And it happens here, and it happens at this particular time and this event. And it says that it came with this wind. It was like the sound, a howling wind. First time I read this passage, I was in high school, and I was listening to the second chapter of Acts, which is a music group, a Christian uh, music group, and they, they had a song where the, the howling wind was in the background, and they kind of read the scripture here of Pentecost, and the, the wind, the wind was blowing, and the Holy Spirit poured out and fell onto the believers, and I remember as a high schooler sensing this, what it would be like to be in this upper room, and all of a sudden, this 
howling wind and the Holy Spirit comes and this great expectation and movement and God's doing something new. And I got caught up in that in high school. That's the, the expectation and the, the encouragement that I got from this passage. And here it says this wind came in. What's the wind? Why does Luke use the idea of wind? Well, here's my thinking. I think he's talking about, in the Old Testament, wind represents the breath of God. It always represents the breath. Ezekiel chapter 37 is the prophecy of the dry bones. And in this particular passage, it says that Israel and all the nations had essentially lost their spirituality. They lost their sense, their fervor, and they were like dry bones in the middle of the valley. They were full of bones. Because of their disobedience, they wandered from God and became literally just dry bones in a valley. And then the Son of Man calls out and says, can these bones ever live again? And I answered, O Lord, you know, again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of the bone, to the bones, behold, I cause a breath to enter you that you may come to life. I put sinews on your flesh and grow back on you and cover your skin and put breath in you that you may come alive. The spirit of God is the breath of God that makes us come alive. It empowers us. It equips us. You are alive in Christ because of this spirit. The second thing that I notice here in this passage in Acts chapter 2 is it says that it was like a fire. And, and the fire came down and distributed on them tongues. Now the idea of fire in the Old Testament is the idea of God's presence. Remember the pillar of fire that they were to follow in the Old Testament? Wherever the fire went, they were to go. Follow the pillar of fire. And then it stopped, that's where you stop and camp. The pillar of fire directed the people of God. But it also represented the presence of God. That God was among his people. It was his glory in their midst. That God wants to dwell with us. God's glory wants to be in you. This is a, a, a reference to the, 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 the special presence of God's glory in your life. And in Genesis, we find it in Exodus chapter Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, with Abraham. But if you go all the way to Exodus chapter 3, we discover that when Moses is called to lead the people out of Egypt, guess what comes? The burning bush, a fire. A fire appears, and it's the presence of God, and he takes off his shoes, and he realizes he's in, he's in a holy presence of God. The glory of God is in his presence. And... And he gets that, and that's the confidence he needs. He says, well, who's going to speak on your behalf? You are. I will put the words in your mouth. There, there is a direct parallel from that event in Exodus to what's going on here in Acts. I will put the words in your mouth. My presence will be with you. And then we find the, second, the third thing in this passage in Acts chapter 2, in this Pentecost experience, is that they received a tongue. They received the Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues. The word is glossolia. Now, it's, it's ironic because in, in this particular era, there were prophets that spoke on behalf of cult religions, and they had these ecstatic utterances that nobody could understand until they interpreted. But something unique's happening here. They're hearing 
the disciples from Galilee speak in their language, not the Galileans' language. They're hearing the message of Christ being spoken in their own language. Imagine that. That you're standing there, and you're from a whole other region, you speak a whole other language, and all of a sudden someone starts breaking out in your language and telling you about Jesus. And you're, what is going on here? It's the day of Pentecost. It's the day of unleashing the church to bring the message to all the cultures of the world. And I find it fascinating, this passage, that it says that they were amazed and perplexed and astonished all at the same time. And they were from all over, right? They're from the Parthians and Medes and the Elamites and Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia. And he references all the regions and all the languages that were represented here. This is Babel in reverse. The Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 is the confusing of languages. The languages confused the people and distributed them all over the world in different cultures and different areas. They came together, they spoke one language, and they wanted to build a tower into the heavens. They wanted to be their own God, and God saw that, and he confused them. And there was mass confusion and disorder, and they pushed out, and that was the end of that. And this is now the reverse of that, where God comes together with one voice, one message in different languages, and speaks with clarity so that they would understand. It's the reversal of Babel. Now, what's going on in terms of these cultures and the message they're hearing? Lamin Sana is a Yale divinity professor, and he wrote a book called Training, uh, uh, Translating the Message. He spent um, most of his life as a Muslim living out the Islamic religion. And he's looking back on the Islamic religion and now the Christian faith from a new perspective, and he's talking about the differences between Islam and Christianity. And he says that when it comes to Islam, there is one language that God speaks. He speaks Arabic. Yeah, you can get the Torah, or excuse me, the Quran in English. But God really speaks through Arabic. If you want to hear the voice of God, you've got to, speak, you've got to read it in Arabic. And, and so it's one voice for one people. And he said the other unique thing about Islam is they're creating a single culture of people. A unified culture that is identified with these markers. One culture for one people, as God speaks, one language. And he says, now that's different than Christianity. Christianity is a faith where God speaks multiple languages. He speaks all the languages of the world, and he speaks it to all the diverse cultures of the world. And there is no one right culture and a wrong culture. There are multiple cultures with a single voice being spoken into that culture, a voice representing Christ. And the objective of faith is not to unify culture to a Christianized culture, but to enter into culture, the diverse cultures of the world, the diverse languages of the world, so that people may hear God in their own language. 
Back in 2012, in a New York Times Magazine article, Lori Gottlieb writes a, an article about therapy in America and the movement of therapy and how it's changed over uh, a period of time. And she's doing her, her dissertation work and spent about six years researching this. She says that what I've noticed is that early on people would go to therapists and they, they, they need help to change themselves. Something's wrong within. She said something's actually changed. People are going to therapy now more not to change themselves, but to blame somebody else for their problems. That there's been a tra transition, a shift from realizing the problem is with me, now the problem is with you. And what we want to do is blame. And it, it brings about what I believe to be a conflict in culture today where we have people that want to blame. I was watching CNN and there were these, like, all these journalists and people talking in these four boxes and it was a yelling, it was a shouting match. Nobody was discussing anything and they were all blaming somebody else for the problems of the world today. And I was thinking, well, what about you? Doesn't it start with you? Shouldn't it start with you? And I think what's going on here is that God gives us the ability to speak in the language of the culture, not to blame others, but to show where the real problem lies. It's within. It's not somebody else. It's you. It's me. It starts with us. And so we bring a message of hope as Peter stands and begins to preach the gospel. What he identifies is it starts with you. Culture's problem is not outside, it's inside. And Christianity is the only faith that communicates within all cultures with a single language to each of the languages of the culture with a single message that we can change the within. We can bring a change within you through the power of Christ. And that's the power of the church. It's not to fight culture. It's not to stand against culture. It's not to, to huddle and, and say, we've got the right theology, and we're going to fight against all these people that have the wrong theology or the wrong perspective. But it's actually, as we're finding here, as all of these nations came together and these individuals, these, these Jewish people from other nations came, they went back. They went back into their own culture. They didn't change their culture by trying to adapt it to another person's culture. They accepted it and received their culture, lived within it, and brought a message of hope. Brought a message that the problem lies within. It's a message that every culture needs, that every culture wants love and truth. They want patience, kindness. They want forgiveness. They want to live in relational harmony with one another. These are the things that are at the root of humanity that are deeply embedded in every culture. And the gospel reaches in and touches that. The message of Christ changes that. And what I have discovered about the church, my understanding of it, is that we are not here trying to fight. and We're not a bomb shelter trying to hide from culture. We're not trying to survive because of humanity, trying to survive culture. We're trying to serve humanity. We're trying to reach in. See, that's the whole difference between a movement and an institution. An institution 
is all about its members. How do we survive with all of these individuals or people around us that aren't part of our institution? They're not part of our organization. And how do we survive in a world that fights against us rather than a movement that exists primarily for its non-members? I mean, think of that's radically unique for the church. People come up and go, well, I'm looking for a really good church. I'm looking for a great preacher. I'm looking for great worship. I'm looking for this. I'm looking for that. And I want to be filled, and I want to go away feeling great. That's wonderful. Don't go to a boring church. I agree with you. Find a great church. Find a good community. I totally agree with that. But if that's the end goal, you're going to be massively disappointed with the church. Because we exist to be equipped and encouraged, and in this particular case, empowered by the Spirit, to go out to its non-members. That is who we are. It's the mission. We're not going to fight a theology. We may have differences in theology. Absolutely. We hold the core truth of who Jesus is. He is the answer. We know that. And we may differ on various views, and we can have that discussion. But we're about something else. I was reading Erwin Manus. He writes a book called Unstoppable Force. He's talking about the church. He said parachurches were born, they were birthed because the church stopped doing its job. Because the parachurch gets, it's not about theology but missiology. It's about the mission of the parachurch. Campus Crusade for Christ was launched to reach college students for Christ. Where was the church? The church was off in a building and college students were going off to another place. And as we're looking in the back right here, we're trying to restore that connection right there. There's the restoration of the church. There's the mission of the church. We're going back into the college campuses through the life of the individuals that have been impacted in this church so that they can go back into their dorms and their fraternities and sororities and their athletic fields and their classrooms encouraged by a church that's behind them to be a life changer. That's what we're trying to do here. That's the mission of the church that has often been lost. I mean, young life reaches high school is wonderful. We need to recapture our vision to reach high schoolers. I mean, you could go through athletics, FCA, and all sorts of wonderful parachurch ministries that are doing an amazing job of preparing the next generation of followers. Many of them working with churches, and I love that. There is a partnership. But it's the church, as I mentioned, that the Holy Spirit falls upon in a powerful way and ordains, as Jesus said, the gates of Hades will not overpower the church. It is the glory of God that exists in the context of the church so that we might go out. And so I find this here in this passage. And then I see Peter standing with eagerness. It says that he raises his voice in verse 14 and he begins to preach the message. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men. You put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. We suffer the agony of death. And Jesus restores that. Jesus changes that. That's the message. 
See, that's what happens when we stand up filled with the Spirit and we speak with the eagerness that Peter had to our generation. And it happens in all different ways. It's the prompting of the Spirit. He just happened to be prompted, stands up, there's an audience, and he speaks. It may be a phone call. I told the first church service this story. I, I, do, I don't remember when I heard it, but I remember many years ago I heard a story about a person who was at a very low point in their life and they were ready to jump off a bridge. The phone rang, and it turned out to be their friend. They had a phone in the back of their pocket, standing on the edge of a bridge. And the phone rang, and they picked it up and looked at it, and the other voice said, hey, what's going on? Where are you? What's, what's happening? That's the prompting of the Spirit. That's what happens when we're filled with the Spirit. We get promptings. Pick up the phone. Pray for someone. Encourage someone. And it doesn't have to be all weird. God told me to tell you. Forget that. Just tell them. Just encourage them. Drop the God language and just be an encouragement. Hey, I was thinking of you. I was prompted to come over here. I don't know why. I have no idea. But I'm here. Can I encourage you? Or you're listening as somebody's talking and you sense something's wrong. Something deeply is disturbed in that person. Can I pray for you? Hey, what's going on? You want to talk more about this? An opportunity to lead them to the place where the agony of death is no longer the master of their life, but Christ is. And the words come out and you get that opportunity. And I like in this passage that, that, that what accompanies Peter is the prophecy of Joel in verse 17. In the last days, Joel reminds us. In the la- we're in the last days. But by the time Pentecost happens, until Jesus comes back, that's the last days. We are in the last days. We don't know how long they are, but as long as we're in the last days, guess what's going to happen? I will pour forth my spirit on all humankind. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your sons, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy. I believe that's part of the prophecy happened at the time of Pentecost. And what we read about in Acts are all these amazing dreams and visions and God calling people there and here and Things are happening. I understand that in the Muslim world where it is illegal to evangelize a Muslim, the only way in which to do so is if they ask you the question. Well, guess what God has done? He's given Muslims in their own countries visions and dreams. We were in Egypt many years ago, and our tour guide, a strong believer in Christ, his name's Fauzi, and he told the story of that night in a cab, not able to share Christ with the cab driver for fear that that cab driver could turn him in. But the cab driver said, hey, I got a question for you. I had a dream last night and it was about Jesus. Really? What do you want to know? He is now free to share who Jesus is. This is the kind of stuff that can happen when the Holy Spirit comes. But oftentimes, we lose our sense of wonder. See, G.K. Chesterton, an English writer, talks about why children's lives are better than adults. 
Children never say, life stinks. Or what is the meaning of my life? Because their life is filled with wonder. The more our life is filled with wonder, the more meaning it has. Don't lose the wonder of the power of the Spirit in your life to do amazing things. And that's where we are today. Ready, poised, excited about a a future. Ten years into this thing, we are still looking ahead going, oh my goodness, what is the Holy Spirit about to do? It's going to happen, and it's going to happen through you. And you're going to have dreams. You're going to have visions. You're going to have promptings. You're going to see things happen. And I'm telling you, just wait. If you want a little push, you watch what happens. I mean, my goodness. And then finally at the end, James is going to come back and he's going to talk about the result of Pentecost in the, in the early church, the development of what we see to be the building of this new church community. It says that they were all perplexed and, and then they were pierced to the heart and they repent. And, and it says they were added about 3,000 souls and they were then continuing to devote themselves together and sense of awe. And it says that they were all together. They were all together. Be together. Find a place to be together. And they had all things in common. What you have is not just yours, it's God's. They had all things in common. They began selling their properties and possessions and were sharing their possessions with those that had need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking of bread and encouragement and sincerity of heart and praising God and finding favor with all people. And adding that day were many that were being saved. And so we see within the structure something amazing happening. The early church was living out its true calling. It was a true biblical community of love and encouragement and concern for one another. And the watching world saw that. As Rodney Stark says, he says that the reason why in the first century through the third century that the church grew powerfully is because of its position about women. They respected women. They honored women in their cultures. And when they did that, they honored and raised them up and valued them at the same level as men. It was not happening in the Roman world, by the way. It was not the way a woman was treated, respected. And they gave her dignity in the name of Christ. And people were flocking to their churches. He says, and he points out, and I've read this several places, that during the plagues, People would flee, and the men would flee to the hills and the mountains because they didn't want to get sick and die, and leaving their families. And it was the Christians who stayed behind. And what they discovered in some of these plagues is all they needed was food and water and time to heal. And the Christians stayed behind. Why? Because they knew that was their calling, and they had a hope that was far greater than this world. They knew that my life, I'm a a witness for Jesus. Remember, we talked about witness being martyr. It's the same word. To be a martyr is to die, which means there's something in you. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to die. I ha- something in me has to die to be a witness for Jesus. What is that in you that has to die to be the witness for Jesus? Well, it's the selling of possessions. It's the coming together with a sense of awe and wonder. It's prayer. It's being focused on the teaching of Scripture. What is it that's missing that once you adopt, guess what happens? The result is the community grew. The church just kept growing. It just kept going bigger and bigger and bigger, not as a result of slick advertising or because they, they bought a building. 
In fact, we see in the third century when Constantine Christianized the world and started building massive buildings, huge cathedrals to Christ. He institutionalized Christianity and he outlawed house churches, which took the power and the fire and the excitement and the awe out of the early, early church. And so what we find in here is they came together. My challenge this morning is for us to, to find the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we close this morning, I want you to understand something. This is an historic event. This happened. It's not going to happen again. We're not going to have the rushing wind. We're not going to have the fire coming down and the tongues. But I guarantee you what will continue on is the filling, the more filling of the Spirit. The Spirit came to demonstrate, I come into the life of the believer to empower them, to equip them, make them eager, eager and expect to be part of a community. But I will continue to fill them. I continue over and over and over again. Be filled with the power of the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. They were continually filled with the Spirit. So this morning, we can pray for the filling of the Spirit. If you know Christ, you have the Spirit. You already have it. You have what you need. But you need a more... You maybe need an empowerment. Maybe you need an encouragement. Maybe you need to be filled this morning once again by saying, Lord, I'm ready. Push me. Because I want more. It's, that's where it starts. So let's pray. Father, this morning as we enter into a time of communion, we, we pray, Holy Spirit, come upon us. Holy Spirit, fill us this morning. Holy Spirit, give us dreams and visions. We desperately desire to see miracles. We, we, we want to be able to speak the language of our culture. We want to be able to enter in and lead them to Jesus. Equip us, empower us. Holy Spirit, fill us. We just pray that right now. I, I receive it. I want more of a filling. Father, I want to be filled up with the Holy Spirit. Come, come, prepare me.